0: Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. So you just got back from one of my favourite cities, uh, Tokyo, and uh, I'll be interested in your perspective on this because, you know, I I always used to feel that going to Japan was like going into the future, uh, but almost like a parallel version of it in which everything had sort of slightly changed uh, but in some ways do you think now we've just ended up with the same homogenous future that's everywhere else
1: yeah i mean it struck me not only from a tech point of view but brand generally i mean i was so excited about the um shopping and, and there were lovely boutiques and beautiful everyone is incredibly chic there but the other thing that struck me was how globalized Um, Tokyo, and and basically most major cities are now, there was all the same brands, Um, there was Uber Eats offering to deliver people food immediately, um, and all the same fashion brands, so increasingly I think now all all the major cities, the, the, the streets are becoming a bit, all the shopping streets at least, are becoming a bit interchangeable.
0: That's very disappointing. (laughs) (laughs) That Uber Eats has sort of become the algorithmic McDonald's of the 21st century. There is, but there was, you know, there was the
1: Starbucks, there was a Dean and DeLuca in our complex. Um, So, yeah, all the same stuff that is within minutes of me in New York.
0: (laughs) I'm sitting having a cup cup of coffee in New York uh, with Lucy Green, who is the head of the innovation group for JWT, which is their future practice. Uh, but even more interesting, she is the author of a brand new upcoming book called Silicon States, The Power and Politics of Big Tech and What It Means for Our Future. I'm actually terrified even just looking at this title <laughs> about the uh, impending dystopia. But uh, we're going to we're going to get into that. Uh, thank you for being on the show.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me. You
0: know, one of the things that is really interesting about even this concept of a silicon state is that there is this sort of new embodied power um, in corporations that's even more powerful than governments or nation states. But this is something we've seen before as well. I mean, we've we've always had these mega multinational shadowy corporations. I mean, even the East India Company, which was given its own standing army, uh, was sort of a supernational corporate private force. Right. So what makes these silicon ones different?
1: Um, A few things. I mean, apart from anything else, the the fact that they almost transcend regional governments in, uh, governance in lots of ways. I mean it's kind of academic where their headquarters are, w- based on where they pay tax or maybe don't pay tax. Um, but also um, they're different in the sense that they are pretty much also the world's most influential consumer brands. Right. So when you think about powerful industries before, um, from uh, the railroad builders to pharma, all of those, um, they've never had quite such a sort of cultural influence in the in the way um, that we live and the way that we shop and and buy things, but but also such an intimate relationship with us, a highly concentrated intimate relationship with us. So we we don't eat, sleep, and breathe with Coca-Cola every single day, and Coca-Cola really only knows what we what we drink, maybe from time to time, or if you've given up Diet Coke ever. <laughs> um, that these brands have a very complex and nuanced understanding of our day-to-day behaviours and coupled with that have this big, big cultural role in, in our, our cultural discourse every single day.
0: Well, there was attempts, I, I guess, in, 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 the, in the previous age of these multinational conglomerates, you know, of better living through technology. You know, this idea that they would literally, they'd make your refrigerators, they'd uh, make your food, that uh, provide housing, but I think the intimacy that you're talking about comes Really, with the magic of data,
1: right? It's sort of uh, the day-to-day monetization of almost all our interactions, basically. So, in, in 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 another sense, you have you know, people bought the railroads, but you weren't constantly generating, especially after they were taken over by the state, and they weren't constantly generating revenue in a sort of commercial way. But in in a sense, especially with the Internet of Things, these these giants are becoming central to. Being able to monetize pretty much everything, every single behavior that we have from right. our interactions in the home to when we walk across the street, um, and it is becoming um, a wider and more holistic in that sense. So you even have these Google-owned Link Pods, for example, in the in the US, in New York and in London, that have uh, photo recognition that ask you to uh, give them your details in order to use free services, but are becoming replacing a public utility that used to be the phone booth.
0: Right. But, but it isn't actually a, a, a free product in the sense that, and you make this point in the book, that the price is subsidised on the basis that they're not selling your product, you are the product.
1: Right, exactly. Uh, your, your interactions are, are the product. So in, in what
0: ways, I mean given the reach of these uh, new organisations into our daily lives with data and algorithms, uh, are they really set to invade almost every aspect of our, of our lives and even the, the kinds of things that governments previously looked after?
1: Yeah, so you're seeing um, tech having, and this is what inspired the book um, in in general, was I started to see what I'd always looked at as consumer brands move into this more sort of stately civic role, looking at these sectors um, as these new areas to disrupt and make their next fortune. So um, you saw, um, well, Amazon most recently moving into disrupt healthcare, or Jeff Jeff Bezos you saw Mark Zuckerberg backing a new alternative model of school. Um, you saw um, Google talking about hacking um, ageing. There was Hyperloop, which was originally Elon Musk's um, concept, which In is transportation,
0: now, yeah. Right,
1: that was looking to redraw cities. And on a more practical level now, you actually have big tech becoming a huge um, contractor for governments. So you have um, DeepMind, owned by Alphabet, working with the NHS in the UK on on making efficiencies in healthcare and uh, very uh, controversially getting access to people's personal health Hmm. data. You have Google also with Sidewalk Labs, another subsidiary. Uh, Building uh, a city from the internet up is the slogan um, in a a neighbourhood in uh, Toronto. Uh, now, so building the first completely internet-optimized um, city, so starting to design town planning, and then, and then even working with defense contractors, um, sorry, the D- Department of Defense and police on on various uh, forms of surveillance and analytics. So, uh, very, very multi-multi uh, pronged now. In addition to, of course, selling us uh, uh, selling us new products and uh, controlling payments um, and becoming sort of um, uh, I can't finish my sentence, I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> oh, basically an octopus. Eh? An <laughs> octopus. I've
1: used the word ambidextrous um, a few times, but like that's, that's how I think of it, Ex- extremely concentrated. And um, really interesting to consider what that could mean, especially if these kinds of things and data is joined up, like what happens, for example, if you get your health insurance with Amazon, but they also happen to know that um, you overorder unhealthy foods and uh, like uh, have an alcohol problem or, or something could affect your cre- a credit rating based on your health data. Like As uh, this, these groups, um, these companies, move into all these different sectors, there's a lot of potential for data sets but the, but to
0: The thing is that it wouldn't even need to be a person consciously making that decision. If there's a machine learning algorithm that has access to all the data, it would right. basically draw the inference itself.
1: Right and you already have examples like that that sort of but the emphasis is all on the positive nudge, right? So, like, we have things that drive and uh, monitor our, our driving habits to get yeah. a cheaper deal,
0: or, or, or uh, you know, Apple Watch that tells us to breathe, do more yoga, or drink more water, or namaste every few minutes. Right, exactly.
1: <laughs> um, there's even an app that tells you reminds you that you're going to die eventually. Apparently, um, yeah, I saw that. That's, <laughs> that's dreadful. But
0: but you know, the, the the challenging thing is if you were one of the traditional actors that provided these services, you mm. know, like a, like a council or a government. Given the data-driven nature of these services, you, you just don't have the scale uh, to be able to deliver this, in, you know, without these sort of new organisations. So, so what is the, you know, what is the choice that we have, you know, between disrupting a, a poorly designed way of doing things versus accepting this Faustian bargain with these big.
1: T- I love Faustian bargain. Um, that is really interesting, actually, because they have become. The experts in in every sense of the way, sort of ideologically, it's you know it's Elon Musk taking us to space. It's not NASA now. Yeah, um, Google's leading life sciences. Uh, Bill Gates is driving big big philanthropy. They kind of become the heroes and the experts in this mythical thing. The, you know, the internet. Even when you look at the ideology, and it is ideology attached to um, blockchain and um, blockchain technology, as this kind of. Libertarian system that helps people uh, ex- uh, like step aside from government interference. There's there's a huge lot of a huge amount of ideology attached to their um, their dominance, as well as practically being experts in this space. I mean, one of the interesting things to me about the congressional hearings, but also the questioning of Facebook and Christopher Wiley during um, the Cambridge Analytica scandal in the UK. Uh, and he even said this was that there's a huge lack of literacy of data and technology literacy in government um, currently. So there's there's not enough people who understand this stuff. So it, it inevitably is going to these these companies. But what I like um, though is there are companies sort of coming up in the most in the last year really that trying to offer a sort of proposed middle route, as it were. Mm. So. Um, I spoke to Dominic Campbell, who's the uh, founder of FutureGov, for example. FutureGov is an organisation that focuses entirely on trying to um, help government services disrupt themselves and bring themselves up to scratch with current digital technology and platforms, (coughs) but in a way that is inclusive to everybody and… Without um, just
0: outsourcing it to a big tech giant. Right,
1: exactly. So helping governments modernise their services, digitise their public services, but do it in an ethically mindful way which I think is is really exciting.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about the, the kind of the tech ideology and the sort of Silicon Valley worldview, because I feel some of those things are have started to look a little shaky. Uh, I mean, one of the prevailing ideas was that social media and the internet would just bring about capitalism and democracy and the American ideals mm-hmm. where, wherever anyone downloaded the app. Right. And, and I think, you know, after the Arab Spring, uh, it started to become... And even more recently, I guess, in the last U.S. elections, it's becoming clearer that just because you're on Twitter or Facebook doesn't mean you're going to be more free or that the news will be any less fake.
1: Sure. I mean, I think it has worked for them for a long time. And that in itself was also quite a new thing with these businesses, right? This very... Um, and Margaret Wenmakers, who actually I spoke to in the book, was one of the architects of this this practice of... Of attaching a bigger narrative or mission statement to what you're doing. So, you know, um, Facebook, it's, you know, connecting the world. It wasn't just sort of a social network in a, a right. way. And so you have all these um, tropes attached to all of these platforms. And sometimes it is brilliant. You know, it is amazing. And she points this out that you can use Google on your phone to look up any piece of information you need. Like some of this is truly brilliant. But then, in other ways um, it has enabled a lot of these companies to sidestep criticism so uh, for one example is that they make um these quite binary statements to avoid sort of meaningful analysis and critique you know uh, that when it came to uh the uh, right to be forgotten it was like you know the internet is about freedom and you wouldn't not want freedom right do you know what i mean um and same same with Uber, it's kind of do you want people to not have um, not have jobs, and it's kind of well, but you're not actually employing people with fair practices, uh, you know, or without any protections for their for right. Their role. So I mean,
0: they've they've set up this straw man of it's either you know uh, freedom or privacy but they're actually right. you should be able to have both
1: yeah and, uh, and uh, Julia Powell who's another academic I spoke to at Cambridge University she specializes in um, this space of digital um, law actually and she said you know there's even this thing where you're sort of made to feel almost a bit hysterical if you question um, uh, these companies they sort of uh, they, they've they got very uh, effective at making to really uh, question uh, their technologies to be somewhat fanatical or socialist or <laughs> yeah. um, against progress that's the that's the big thing about uh, the european union and um, big tech companies
0: but but the funny thing is when you go to the heartland of these companies like san francisco to to me you know when you spend time there it's, it's actually it's truly a dystopia.
1: Yes. I mean,
0: you really, it more feels like the uh, the future than Tokyo in some ways in in that you've got these really high tech companies, uh, you know, with incredible technology and, you know, who are trying to use technology to transform the world. And then at the bottom of their building, there are all these homeless people, Yeah, right? So people are so busy putting, you know, their their rubbish in, you know, 20 different recycling bins. But they've got they're sort of totally blind to the actual human issues that, that are at their doorstep.
1: Yeah, and there's even been that sort of polarizing economic effect on the the culture. You know, I find it so sad that um San Francisco used to be this place that was known for being a bit out there, a bit alternative. And counterculture and, and Yeah, you had counterculture, you had the beat poets, you had like a bit of grit and genuine crazy um eccentrics there and and now and San
0: Francisco Bears.
1: Right, exactly. <laughs> and now, and now, you've got this very um, bland cultural landscape where there's the sort of the tech workers who have like a very singular, surprisingly singular worldview, um, which I think gets only entrenched the more time they spend there. And then, of course, it's not just the homeless; it's the uh, people, or you know, lower-income middle-class people, or people who might have lived in Haight, Ashbury. Uh, that's not going to happen again in, in San Francisco, which I think is is also um, quite interesting. A friend of mine who I um, was speaking to about this, he's lived in San Francisco Cisco all his life and he said, you know, it used to be that if you were on Hey ashbury you know, maybe on a Saturday night, it wasn't weird to see someone like a woman cycling around topless. Um, and now they all just have to go to Burning Man to do that, right. um, which I think kind of was an, a neat point, actually, or neat observation.
0: So, so you know, w- what do you think is really at the heart of, of these silicon states myopia? I, I mean, is it this idea that technology is the solution for everything or that there's an app to solve every problem?
1: Uh, yeah, I think there is. Uh, well, it's, it's obviously very uh, data-driven. Uh, it's very... Um, in education, the common themes was, were that uh, personalisation in, in learning was, uh, which uh, delivered by technology of course, uh, was uh, the optimum for like learning more efficiently. Um, in philanthropy again, tech was the sort of solution and there's this idea in their approach to philanthropy that um, somehow having an entrepreneurial approach to it, their unique approach to it will solve world problems faster right. and so uh, social good and profit can um, coexist comfortably rather than being and actually make doing social good more efficient the, and, the
0: tom's shoes kind of worldview, right,
1: right. yeah exactly and, and um, is, is, that, is that not true the thing about especially i thought the philanthropy side of it i thought was super interesting because i think that that will quickly permeate into other civic services this approach that Almost applying an entrepreneurial approach makes you solve the problem much, much quicker because you're much more incentivized. And that um, actually making scalable businesses from solving these problems is, is delivering the world a big benefit. And um, if you speak to um, some of them, you know, it actually means that some of these services will, thanks to economies of scale, bring the prices of things down as well and make it
0: much. Although there is an argument that the entrepreneurial approach, you just end up with the US healthcare system.
1: Exactly. Well, but also, you know, um, they're creating companies, not foundations, and they're not very transparent. And so you really don't know how money um, is being spent. And it, again, it's incredibly binary and unsubtle, their approach to this stuff. It's like, let's solve this problem. Like We're going to end disease, according to Mark Zuckerberg or, um, or Bill Gates. Uh, we're going to solve cancer, solve ageing, it's incredibly ego-led and... And if
0: we can't we'll just give them a universal basic income and keep them happy so they can can subscribe to Netflix and get iTunes credits.
1: Yeah, it's incredibly skewed and and it ignores actually the fact that all areas of charity work which are about alleviating or um, improving and, and there's also big socio-economic bent in the way they're approaching both life sciences and philanthropy too. Um, in the direction of things that are like sexier problems to solve. Uh, So, you know, alongside taking us to Mars, because we really need that now, they're not really looking at the opioid crisis or or anything like that. I think the most – the only exception to that is Jeff Bezos and the the move to try and rethink um, health insurance. And yes, it will inevitably have AI and data involved in that, but um, that seems to me like quite an... I, I personally would quite like someone to disrupt the American healthcare system, yeah. frankly. Well,
0: it seems that, I mean, in a nutshell, that you know, the use of data and algorithms and machine learning is not in itself evil or immoral. Right. But just because you use it doesn't make that the optimal solution. Uh, that you, whether it's uh, through the state or through associations or even just through you know some... I guess more principled leadership. Uh, you need to be able to combine uh, a sense of human outcomes with whatever tools you're using.
1: Right, and we've seen how bad these guys are at forecasting potential ethical, if not like um, reputational, <laughs> yeah. um, issues. That was I was listening to the Facebook shareholder call recently <laughs> after the Cambridge Analytica scandal. They yeah. said, you know, why don't you have more people looking at? Um, like uh, foresight so sort of trying to scenario plan how some of these technologies at uh, at the very least could create problems for Facebook and problems for uh, Facebook's reputation and therefore profit and um, the answer was kind of like there wasn't an answer.
0: It's always a naivety isn't it like uh, uh, but the thing is it's not like other companies haven't Uh, I mean Apple Apple's taken a very different approach to user privacy than Facebook Right. Uh, to the extent they wouldn't provide unlock codes to the FBI when they demanded it. And, yeah. you know, they when you use their payment services, they kind of they don't actually provide your data or mm. store your data. Um, so uh, in some ways, whether it's naivety or otherwise, you, you're seeing a divergence with some of these larger tech companies. Yeah,
1: even. but that was that was a really interesting example to me in terms of. The relationship between tech and the government. So, Apple in that scenario became more of a well, in the fact that it was standing up to the government and saying no. And we've seen more repeated examples of that, and was was able to say no. And it kind of presented the government as as the the bad guy, right? yeah. And meanwhile, Apple was the sort of protector of of our data and the crusader and. You see that even in the way um, Airbnb and Uber mobilise their audiences to uh, affect legislative change that they want, or legislative protections that they want. So again, they kind of use this crossover as consumer brands and the fact that they have these big... um, So they, they use the fact that they have this huge connection and deeply entrenched connection to their consumers, and with Airbnb and Uber they're kind of consumers and employees um, to... Uh, to
0: actually force change.
1: Yeah, to amplify and mobilise audiences against governments. <laughs> so, like, Airbnb has Airbnb Citizen, which is a whole... Um, they sort of talk about the gig economy or the sharing economy as a new guild that needs representation, and they've even um, hired um, Chris Lahane, who uh, I believe works in the uh, administration... To work on policy, and all the messaging is about you know how the the government is stopping middle class families making much needed supplementary income, um, and ignoring or sidestepping the fact that like it's also distorting rents um, yeah. in many places. Or, or
0: Uber is providing employment without benefits,
1: right? Exactly. Or protections, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, so there was a whole campaign here in New York recently because there's been moves to make. Um, to tax taxis higher. And so Uber has literally been, um, well, using, it has a big Twitter following as well, but also using messaging to say, you know, your taxis are going to cost more and it's going to be harder to use us because because of this. And um, so they really lean into their role of um, their consumer influence, but also the fact that consumers ultimately are driving how powerful they are too. So one of the interesting things I think about this cultural tipping point we're having now, where suddenly they are being criticised, and um, big tech companies right on um, on television, is it doesn't in any way correlate with how we're behaving. As as right. consumers, so
0: pe- people go hashtag delete Facebook, but how many of us actually did?
1: Yeah, barely any, a negligible amount. And even if they did leave Facebook, they're probably still on WhatsApp, on on or Instagram, or, or Instagram, right. even though it's
0: owned by Facebook. Right, right exactly. <laughs> so
1: there's there's an extent, and that's I mean maybe it's to an extent some of that is due to the fact that it is just incredibly inconvenient to live or work now and not inter- interact well, with any of those. I was
0: going to ask you this, I mean, what is the path of resistance to the Silicon State? Uh, I, I mean, is it really binary that you either delete or you, you know, is there, I feel like we're at this, you know, we're at this critical point where uh, day by day our ability to resist or to shape these, um, you know, these new megalithic organisations is, is starting to shrink.
1: Yeah and I think that's also I agree and I think to an extent it's too big of an idea to even engage with or like contemplate when you think about the the extent of what it could be and so you can feel really powerless. I mean the only the only thing that I think could work to cur- curtail them is for a, a newly strengthened state who understands uh, with, with, you know, as Amnesty International has done, created a think tank to scenario plan the ethical and human rights implications of these new technologies. Governments should be doing that too, and developing new ways to uh, regulate these technologies. But the EU, and,
0: the EU doesn't feel like the right approach either, just slamming massive fines on them.
1: Well, yeah, I mean the GDPR thing was kind of a disaster. I think in yeah. the end, it's been agreed. Um, no, I think it, the thing is at the moment it's all being it's reactionary. And as much as these new technologies are going to create pressures on the state, you know, in theory, we're not going to have any parking tickets or speeding tickets because we'll have these driverless cars that like a flawless drivers not killing people as um, uh, they have done recently. But um, so that's going to Remove a lot of revenue, forecast revenue from governments, and also a lot of these technologies, from from drones to uh, um, surveillance, are um, require extra uh, regulation and policing and new policy to be developed. So you have all these pressures, but they also create new opportunities to be taxed in different ways. If it, if you had uh, <laughs> bodies that understood it and uh, and were keeping a pace with these technologies, so I think it's about the, a newly uh, emboldened state, um, and a
0: new type of leader, I guess. You know, within states or even organisations.
1: Right, and I, t- I talk about this a bit in the book. How um, it's interesting. I've studied millennials for like fifteen years now, and um, the wants, needs, and granular desires of. Well, wow, it's, it's
0: amazing <laughs> you managed to maintain your sanity in the
1: <laughs> I was quite excited when Gen Zs became more more interesting, um, but. Uh, They've historically been defined as being, while progressive, quite superficially so. So, you know, they care about sustainability until it becomes inconvenient and they'll change their face to a rainbow on Facebook or right. share a meme about, you know, pray for Paris. But
0: but they, they won't actually go on a blood drive they won't or do anything
1: and like, or they, volunteer or, or vote. Yeah. yeah. And, but now in the last two years, there's a. a This cultural tipping point with big tech, but also with um, the US election and Brexit, you have seen a reawakening of this group, and this group have much better understanding of technology and the implications, which is not to say as they become more politically engaged and run for office um, that they won't be subject to the the same financial incentives as um, other lobbying – people being lobbied. But at least they'll have more of an understanding, and I think you'll see that even more so with Generation Z as they become um, voters for the first time.
0: But do this new generation, do they do they fear and resist the, the big tech, or do they have uh, they actually been fully co opted?
1: Well, Generation Z are pretty much. I mean. The highest users, that they're the first true digital natives, and they've right. grown up with this all being mature. I think
0: because they've all been born post two thousand and seven.
1: Right, exactly. So and they're about like twelve to nineteen years old right now. Um, I think what's interesting about them is they have an extremely sophisticated understanding and use of technology, and that includes being able to – I mean, that generation I believe more than any other is able to sort what is fake news and what isn't.
0: And they may actually understand their privacy settings.
1: Right, exactly. So they're (laughs) very, very high users, I don't think they're going to not be consumers of this technology, but when it comes to everything from the brands that they uh, consume, to their heroes, to politicians, they – they won't be fooled and they're very critical and they're very well informed and um, they're using technology and you saw that even with the um, organised protests uh, uh, for uh, gun control um, led by those uh, uh, teenage activists. Very, very adept at using technology to set up brands, set up charities uh, and affect change so even though they're still using these brands I think we'll see a different dynamic. It it feels
0: like the right answer that in an age of massive global data-driven consumer brands, the only path of resistance is more discerning consumers.
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Lucy, it's been wonderful having you on the show and meeting you. Uh, Congratulations on your book. Everyone should read it. Uh, And uh, thanks for being on the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds.